If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn in them with me to the book of John, the Gospel of John. Uh, If you're visiting with us, there's some Bibles on the back table. If you didn't bring a personal Bible, or you can simply look at the screen, the passage will pop up here in a moment as I read through it. We have been studying the Gospel of John now for some 20 weeks and started earlier this summer. And I find ourselves today in the second half of John chapter 7, which I kind of joke to somebody is kind of lost, I think, a lot in our reading of John. We remember maybe the events of chapter 6 and Jesus feeding the 5,000 on the hillside. We remember the events of chapter 8 and Jesus being confronted with the adulterous woman, but maybe 7 gets kind of lost in the shuffle. It's a hard chapter. And uh, last week in particular was a hard sermon, hard text to work through. This week, a little bit easier, I think, but good stuff nonetheless. Just to kind of re-acclimate you to where we are, last week I spoke about how we had taken this giant leap forward between chapter 6 and chapter 7, six months or something, from the Feast of Passover to the Feast of Booze, which is a fall feast. And as we pick up where we left off last week, we haven't jumped ahead in time too much. Uh, We've only jumped ahead in time a few days. So we're just a few days from where we were last week, for those of you who were here last week. As I said, it's still the Feast of Booze, this week-long feast, seven-day feast, culminating in an eighth day of celebration. And so it's fall. It's about this time of year, maybe a little bit earlier. And Jesus is still in Jerusalem. He's still teaching and making people marvel. He's infuriating the Jews particularly the religious leaders, as he claims to be the one from heaven sent by God, the Messiah. And so opinions remain divided about Jesus at this point, and we'll see some of that again today. But Jesus is unconcerned about how he is perceived by the greater world, certainly by the culture. Instead, he is laser-focused on what he came to do, and we've honed in on this in recent weeks. Jesus came to do the will of the Father. That was his driving force, was to glorify his Father who had sent him. So today, as we pick up in chapter 7, there's another kind of significant shift as Jesus, who remember just several days ago, he came into Jerusalem kind of under the radar, right? His brothers had said, hey, go show yourself. He said, I'm not going. And then he ends up going kind of under the radar. Well, now, as you're going to see in just a moment, now he stands up. And he creates a stir. So, so much for going under the radar beginning today. So John chapter 7, starting at verse 37, reading through the end of the chapter today. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. John chapter 7, 37 through 52. Follow along as I read. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this is really the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And so there was a division among the people over him. 
Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered him, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Please go ahead and be seated. It was just last year when a young couple from California, perhaps some of you heard about this story in the news, a young couple from California and their one-year-old daughter were found dead 1.6 miles from their car with an empty 85-ounce water pack. They'd gone from a family hike in the Sierra National Forest, not packed enough water, and the temperature had reached 108 degrees that day. remember hearing about that. It's such a tragic story, and the kind of which we don't hear very often, do we? Our modern existence is one of endless water sources. The most crucial element we need to survive, right? We turn on a tap and it just flows. We walk into a convenience store and there it is, bottled and cold for us to consume. But of course, as we've seen already, this hasn't always been the case. We saw this with Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well when people came to the well to get water. It still isn't the case in many places in our world. We live in a very privileged place here in the West, here in America. But take, for instance, the redemption story of of God's people Israel. After He rescued them from Egypt, as they headed to the promised land, they're wandering in the wilderness. The desert was one of constant need of and concern of for water. Where are we going to get water? And of course, food as well. We're talking hundreds of thousands of people. We must have water. And it's water, again, this fundamental human need that is the center of our passage this morning. The center of Jesus' words to the world. Water that points to an even greater fundamental human need. And so this morning as we think about this passage, I have just two wonderful truths that I want to unpack this morning using the language of Jesus here. Two truths, and the first one is this. In Jesus, your hearts can be filled. In Jesus, your hearts can be filled. Of course, Jesus drove this point home, and we talked about it several months ago. Jesus drove this point home to the woman at the well. 
kind of a one-on-one interaction where he encouraged her to drink of him and we talked a little bit about that. Now he does it to an entire crowd of people. But I want you to see the picture and the power of what he speaks here this morning. It's the last and greatest day, presumably the eighth day of the Feast of Booze. We talked about the three great feasts last week. This is the Sabbath day. And as Leviticus 23.36 prescribed, for seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord, and on the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation. And for So for seven days, Jesus and all those around him had not only lived in tents, right? We talked about how that was one of the main facets of the Feast of Booze is that the people would live in tents, makeshift shelters to remember God's care for them in the wilderness. But each day of the feast, for the past seven days, they had witnessed this, this great procession. You see, every morning, the high priest would take a golden pitcher and he would descend down to the pool of Siloam followed by this procession of people, and he would fill up this pitcher. And then he would walk back up and ascend towards the temple with the people of God in his wake. And they would be singing the Psalms, the Hallel, Psalms 113 through 118 that they knew by heart. They would be singing these Psalms, and they would all enter the temple to blast of the shofar. And they would process around the altar until the singing was done, and then The men who were present would hold palm branches in one hand and citrus in their left hand, symbols of the harvest that they had gathered, and they would shout to together in unison, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. And the priest holding this golden pitcher as he quoted Isaiah 12.3, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation and He would pour the water out before the Lord. It was quite the spectacle. A daily spectacle for the people of God. A ceremony to look back, right? To the provision of water in the wilderness. To the provision of harvest. It was a ceremony to look forward To look forward to God's promise that when the Messiah arrived, as that water was poured out on the altar, so the Spirit would be poured out like streams upon the earth. Isaiah 44, verse 3, the Lord says this, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour My Spirit upon your offering my blessing on your descendants. So brothers and sisters, all of that had been happening every day for the past seven days. And now here it is, the eighth day, and there's no processional. There's no pouring out. There's just a celebration. And into this scene comes verse 37. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, come to me, and drink. Right? As I said, so much for flying under the radar. No, instead Jesus seizes upon this deep symbolism that all the people of God have been soaked in for the past week. And He places Himself at the very center 
of it all. I mean, he'd already confused the Samaritan woman with this kind of language, but now as his time is drawing near, he announces it to the whole city. Seizing upon the absolute necessity of water for physical existence, he pivots this need to the universal thirst of the soul. Right? Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, Jesus isn't saying this as if it doesn't include everyone. (laughs) Right? We all thirst. We are all spiritually thirsty. We are all searching and striving to fill a void, a need that can ultimately only be filled by God Himself. And we've spent some time on this, as I said in John chapter 4 when we looked at the woman at the well. Why is this the case? Because we were made by Him for Him. Right? What does the church father Augustine say? You have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in Thee. I read a fuller version of this quote from A.W. Pink, but I pulled it up just because it was so good. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But A.W. Pink says this, whether he articulates it or not, the natural man, the world over, is crying, I thirst. Why this consuming desire to acquire wealth? Why this craving for the honors of the world? Why this mad rush after pleasure? Because there is an aching void in the soul. And I'm here to proclaim to you that in Jesus your heart's can be filled. Jesus says for in verse 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Right? We've talked about this a little bit. Coming is believing. Drinking is communing. Stepping back from our worldly pursuits and pressing into Him, utilizing all the means of grace that He has given to you and to me. Jesus is saying, you need me. Not something I can give you. You need me. My very presence in your life. And ever since the garden, that is what you and I have needed most. More of God. Right, created out of this overflow of love within the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to experience part of that fellowship, communion with our Creator is what our hearts ultimately long for. In the Old Testament, God's presence was, was metered, right? It was protected. It was surrounded by safeguards because of our sin. A cloud, a curtain, a pillar of fire. The Spirit of God was present in the Old Testament. He was present at the very beginning, but He was present in limited ways. Right? He would fall upon Samson. He would fall on Gideon and David. But Moses wanted more. Remember Moses? He wanted to see His glory. And he wanted more for everybody. In Romans 11.29, he says, Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. And Jesus stands up and says, It is coming. The fullness of the Spirit. God will again dwell with men in men. But you must drink of Me. Remember how God provided for His people? That very physical, tangible water in the desert? 
Exodus 17 tells the amazing story of Yahweh instructing Moses to strike a rock, which he did. And life-giving water flowed from that rock. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, they drank from the spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ. So Jesus is announcing that, hey, my time is drawing near. My time has come, and that I will take the blow. And from me, through me, life-giving water, the Spirit Himself will be ours. So He says, come and drink. Repent of your sin and accept accept His death for those sins. Come and drink, receiving His life. For He rose from the dead to give it to you. Come and drink, receiving His Spirit, the person and the presence that you were made for, the only one who can truly satisfy. Come and drink. And keep drinking. Because in Jesus, your hearts can be filled. That's just the Gospel that we celebrate every week. That we sing of every week that every day ought to get us out of bed in the morning. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen. And Jesus is coming again. Let's get up and serve Him. But there's another truth that I want us to see from this passage. And it's this. In Jesus, your hearts will overflow. In Jesus, your hearts will overflow. I want you to think for a moment of a passion that you love. Some beauty that you love. Something that brings you just great joy in your life. It's different for all of us. There's some overlap between us. Maybe it's hiking to see the grandeur of of Mount Baker or Mount Rainier. Maybe it's creating and consuming some culinary delight. Maybe it's attending a concert of your favorite musician. Maybe it's collecting or creating some kind of beautiful art as reflective of your Creator. Whatever it is, you fill in the blank. Now certainly those things can be enjoyed alone. But imagine only experiencing them that way. No one is with you. You don't tell anyone about it. And you have no video, no pictures to share with anyone. You actually diminish the joy that you could have. And in some small measure, you actually in a way minimize the beauty that you have witnessed. See, in our passage this morning, Jesus instructs that those who are filled with His life with His Spirit, will overflow. Verse 38, Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of His heart will flow rivers of living water. Commentators talk about, is this Jesus' heart that is flowing living waters? Is this our hearts that are flowing living waters? I think it's both. 
Obviously, we have living water in us because of the living water that we have consumed. But that living water is also supposed to go from us and will go from us. In other words, through the giving and receiving of the Spirit, Jesus makes us channels, conduits, and rivers of His life. I've seen it happen a hundred times. I've heard about it happening. Right? People coming to you, your coworkers, your neighbors, drawn to you with their burdens, drawn to you with your concern. And so they come with their stories. They come with their brokenness. Why? Because they see Christ in you. Because they're getting a taste of those living waters that are flowing from you. And they may not recognize it as such, but it's a reality. We're all spiritually thirsty. We're all looking for that water. And when we get a taste of it, we go towards it. So the question is, for us, how do we respond to those people? I sometimes marvel at how uncompassionate I am compared to my Savior. I mean, do we write them off because of their sin and brokenness? Do we get angry at them because they're so messed up? Do we pray for compassion, recognizing that they're just thirsty? Well, as we close this morning with that challenge lingering, Verses 40 through 47, I think, give us some of the diversity of opinions about Jesus. Opinions that were prevalent then, opinions that still exist today. And I've divided them into three categories the ignorant, the indifferent, and the hostile. And I recognize that these are not hard and fast categories that, that John or Jesus was trying to establish here, but I think it's helpful for us to see them and to see them in our worlds today. Verses 40 and 41, the ignorant, right? These are people who are on the cusp of belief. They're, they're moving in the direction of faith. They're open, but they just don't know enough. They just haven't had enough exposure. Right? John records that some say perhaps this is the prophet. Deuteronomy 18 spoke of a prophet to come greater than Moses who would speak the words of God to God's people on his behalf. People were waiting for that prophet. Others said this is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah. Well, now, now we're on the right track. But many in the first century believed that these figures promised in the Old Testament were two different people, the prophet and the Messiah. And so shaped by the thinking of their day, they, they failed to recognize that Jesus was standing before them as both. And I would put the arresting officers who were sent to get Jesus by the Pharisees who come back empty-handed in our passage. They're mentioned in verses 45 and 46. I would put them in this camp, right? They are in awe of what Jesus has said. They can't do anything with him. But they don't know who he is. They just need to understand some more. And who's going to help them? I mean, how many in our world fit into this category? They don't necessarily have a bad taste of Jesus in their mouths. In fact, they're intrigued. But they need their ignorance and maybe their cultural misunderstandings 
to be corrected with the real Jesus in you. So that's the ignorant. Then there's the indifferent. Verse 42, Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? You see, I I call these the, the indifferent because they know something is there. They know that there's something that needs to be investigated, but they don't want to take the time to do it. We know, of course, that Jesus was born in the city of David. Right? He was born in the city of Bethlehem. How hard would it have been for them to get to the bottom of this? They just needed to ask Him. So what prevented them? They're lazy. They're too busy. They're distracted. They're too comfortable. Why do I need to know? My life is just fine. You see, the indifferent, these are the kind of people that will cry out in the valleys at their lowest. But right now, there is no need for Jesus. So why would I try? And then finally, verse 45 and following, the hostile. Right? These curious officers, they return to the chief priests and Pharisees expressing their amazement. And how are they met? They're mocked. They're met with disdain. How can you be so stupid to fall for that? Verse 48, have we, the intellectually elite, fallen for such silliness? Do you see any Pharisees saying that this is the one? We are the ones who understand the law. We are the ones who understand reality. And they lay the same accusation on Nicodemus. Nicodemus who met Jesus back in chapter 3, who is growing in his understanding, who is growing in his faith, who seeks to lower the temperature of the room among his colleagues by bringing up this procedural point. And in response to him, they actually distort the truth. They state incorrectly that no prophet comes from Galilee. There actually were prophets from Galilee. Jonah was from Galilee. So they spin the truth in their disdain, in their mockery, they're hostile. And boy, have we seen this before. We see it all the time in our ivory tower institutions, in the halls of science, before the cultural gatekeepers. To entertain Jesus and who He is is absolute stupidity and foolishness. But of course, the Apostle Paul said this would always be the case, right? The cross is foolishness to the world. That ought not to surprise us. But it also ought not to deter us from the spiritually thirsty. It ought not to deter us that as those filled with Jesus, we can't help but let those rivers of living water flow out to others. We're all in this room equipped in different ways to do this. Given different opportunities to do this. There's no cookie cutter approach. The reality is simple. In Jesus, your hearts will overflow. So just ask, how, how are they overflowing? I don't know in your life. 
There are two inland seas in the land of Israel. There's the Dead Sea, aptly named, because its water is stagnant. It only receives. It receives and it just sits. And then there is the Sea of Galilee, this wonderful sea that receives the mountain water, takes that water, giving life to the fish, and then pushes that water down the Jordan River, giving life to the arid valley. Which one are we? Which one are you? In Jesus, we are filled to be full and to overflow. May God give us grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the words of our Savior. We thank you for the promise of your presence in us as we drink deeply of who you are and of what you've done. Oh, Father, our desire is that those waters of life would indeed overflow out of our lives, out of our homes, out of our offices, in whatever way you see fit. So Father, I pray that you would take your word, that you would plant it deep in our hearts, that it would not return to you void, but would it would accomplish all you intend for it to accomplish for our good and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.